Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, you're going to hear me talk to the author, Sarah Dara Littman. She is a YA author. You know, she teaches at Yale at a workshop that they have there. And we talk a lot about writing, about growing up Jewish. (laughs) She spent time as a kid in England. And she knows about cheese and journalism and uh, artificial intelligence. She'll talk about some of her books. She'll talk about dealing with Nazis. And I mean it, really. So there's a lot here. And we spend a lot of time talking, partly because, frankly, she is just fun. I think you're going to really enjoy her. So I'm really excited to have you listen to our conversation. I'm also excited to have you subscribe to this podcast. Do it. You can leave reviews of this podcast. Of course, you can tell friends about this podcast. And you can also leave me messages or comments. All you need to do is go to isthatreallylegal.com. And there is a place where you can leave those messages. Of course, you can leave reviews and comments everywhere where you get this podcast. And I know that, you know, Apple or iHeartRadio or you know, um, Audible or all these places. We're everywhere. I am right behind you in this moment. You can even look behind you and grab one of those Abe's muffins that you probably bought (laughs) and have as a snack. All right, without further ado, it's time to listen to Sarah Dara Littman. Thank you. Sarah Dare Littman, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you so much for being here. Did I say your name right, by the way? You did, yes. Awesome. <laughs> Good, because you and I have never met until today, except on Twitter. Yes. Um, it, just imagine, this may be why I write for young adults, but um, imagine growing up with the name Sarah Dara. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and just to show you what comedians my parents were, um, or I, uh, so I'm named after my great grandmother, Sarah and Esther. Um, but I also had a great grandmother named Clara and they were actually thinking at one point of, you got it, Sarah, Clara, Dara. <laughs> but luckily well, they didn't. <laughs> as an attorney, I, I could advise you that might be something you could sue them over if you wanted to, but <laughs> well, luckily that didn't they get... passed. But... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sorry. But, um, uh, but, but yeah, that, you know. Well, well, let's first of all talk about, um, for those people who don't know you, you write and you uh, specialize in young adult or YA, right? Yeah, middle grade and young adult, but mostly young adult. Yeah. I think I asked you on because as happens for me, um, I either have someone I've known for 20 years and I think they're great, or I'm on Twitter. I see something that somebody says that makes me go, oh my God, I really love that. Or they look like somebody for whatever reason I should be having on my podcast. And you were that person. So uh, you are, I looked you up, obviously I do a little research and you and I are close to contemporary. I'm a couple of years older than you, but close enough that we speak the same language and the same cultural upbringing. Did you grow up on the East Coast? I grew up in Connecticut. I was born in New York City, moved, my parents moved to Connecticut. Then when I was seven, we moved to London. 
Um, so I lived in the UK from the ages of seven to 12 and went to an English school. Oh, I went to the American school for like half a semester and then um, went to an English school, English girls school, where we had school uniforms down to our underwear. <laughs> wow, I feel like I want to ask questions, but I'm not sure that's a good idea. Yeah, like, no, I probably it, shouldn't have mentioned that, but yeah, it's like, you know. What um, makes, first of all, I, what makes the underwear conforming to the school uniform? And secondly, how do they know? Oh, because like we would go like, you know, part of like the, the fun of being at this girl's school was that you would like flip up someone's skirt to make sure they were wearing their uniforms, uh, uniform underwear. So these, these, these underwear, sorry, I should, no, that's should fine. have said that while you were drinking. No, um, but yeah, no, these uniform underwear were like, so the school uniform was maroon and they were basically maroon granny pants. They were very attractive. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, there is. And it was the seventies. <laughs> yeah, but there's. You never know what someone will find attractive. That's the G-rated version of what some might say. And there's some internet rule that if you can think of a, I hate to use the term, but a porn or a turn-on or something on the, it's already there. There's like oh God, nothing yes. hasn't yeah. been. There's nothing new under the sun, so to speak. So yeah. I have to tell you, I've only been to London once. It was only a few years ago. And when I went, I was taken by, I went to the British Museum with my wife and a group of school kids came through with clipboards and whatever. And they were wearing little uniforms and they had adorable little British accents to my <laughs> New York year. And I was like, oh my God, they're all Harry Potter. <laughs> Oh, so, so I, so I lived there as a kid and then my first husband was, was English. So I moved to, um, from Manhattan. If you, if you're my vintage, you remember the Green Acres. Sure. Um, so I moved from living in Manhattan and working on Wall Street to, um, marry this Jewish farmer, believe it or not, like they do exist, um, and moved to Dorset um, in England, Thomas Hardy country, sure. where um, I doubled the Jewish population in this village of under 300 people, <laughs> and then tripled and quadrupled it when I had my two kids. Um, so my son, when he was young. So then eventually I lived there for 10 years in the, in the farm and then moved back to the US and my son was in first grade and the second grade teacher was reading the kids Harry Potter. And my son had this British accent and round glasses. <laughs> and these kids in the second grade class passed my son in the hall and they were like, oh my God, it is Harry Potter. <laughs> you know? Did you, what, what kind of farm was it? It was a dairy farm and we made cheese. So oh, that's fantastic. I it was, sadly it was love cheese. Oh, me too. Um, yeah. Uh, despite the fact that I'm divorced from the cheese making father of my children, um, I do love cheese. Yes. Um, so. And I know probably more than any other person in my, you know, when I lived in Greenwich, Connecticut for 20 years about the lactation yield curve of a dairy cow <laughs> then. Um, but it never really came up in conversation amongst the hedge fund titans. Maybe if you were at the, in Greenwich, there's a fairly decent Whole Foods. And if you go by the cheese section, you might be able to have a conversation yeah. 
with uh, an ex New Yorker who was forced to live in Greenwich because of a bad yeah, or good pandemic. marriage. Or, yeah. or the pandemic. Yeah. I yeah. yeah no, in fact, that's why we moved out of Greenwich because we sold our house because the prices were going insane and we, we'd already planned to downsize eventually. And we were just like, we're doing it now. I'll come to Brooklyn where it's very cheap, he said, joking. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe, well, we won't. This is not a real estate show, but it is shocking. <laughs> um, uh, you remind me, as you're in your home office, which people won't see because this is audio only, when I lived in the suburbs of Massachusetts, by the way, not far from some dairy producers, for people who don't know, Massachusetts is strange in that Boston to the burbs, you could be in the country, like in the real country farmland, in just a few minutes. In New York City, and by the way, if you hear some noise, I'm sorry, that's Brooklyn outside and I can't stop Right, Brooklyn. no, my, my sister lives in Brooklyn, so I know uh, that. <laughs> what, what, may I know what area, roughly? Uh, roughly sure. near Borough Park area. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I am, No, wait, no, 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 sorry, not Borough Park. Hall. No, Hall. Prospect yeah. Park. Oh, oh, very different. Yeah. I know, Borough yeah, Park. no, I was like, I have Borough Park, like, because like, yeah, no, Prospect Park, sorry. Very right. different. Yes. No, no, yeah. And that's not <laughs> that far from me. I, I got a sense of where she is. Okay. Anyway, folks who are like, who cares about Brooklyn? I want to know more about writing. So do you ultimately, though, what was your schooling? Like, did you end up going to college? And did you do it here in the States? I did. I um, So when I was in high school, I loved writing, took creative writing, you know, was thought I wanted to grow up and write the great American novel. Um, but I got the message, which I think a lot of people of our generation did, which is you'll never make a living as an English major. And I think a lot of kids today get that same message. Um, I have so, the actor version of that. Right. Okay. You're not so going to make a living as an yeah. actor. Right. Yeah, so um, so I majored in political science, which I'm not sure why that was considered more marketable. Um, but it was it's what I much. did too. So <laughs> it's what my it's and it's what my father was fascinated in. So I was highly influenced by that. Um, and then I ended up graduating and starting to work on Wall Street, and ended up going to NYU at night and getting an MBA in finance. So you um, went to the Stern School, which my brother I did. did Oh, which was, it wasn't called the CERN school then. I think it was, but it was before I got my diploma because. Uh, for you yeah. at home, she is looking behind her yeah. where she has uh, her, basically, we used to call them the ego wall when I was in. The ego uh, wall, yeah. Farm. So yeah. where'd you go undergrad? I went to Duke. Okay, well, that's fascinating because I don't hear any Southern influence. And a lot of people consider Duke sort of the Southern Harvard, if you will. Although, well, Duke likes to, to think, yeah, yeah, Duke likes to think of Duke as the Harvard of the South, and or or they call Harvard the Duke of the North. Yeah, right, right, right. There's a lot, there's definitely a lot of ego, not so much with the students, but with the people who are, you know, indoctrinating the students. Yes. Uh, although um, I'm sure it was a beautiful place to go to school. It was a wonderful place to go to school. I met a lot of really fascinating and interesting people and took some great classes. But I will say that Duke is where, I was brought up in a, um, a family that was very much, you know, the American, you know, the American dream is real and, you know, anyone can, and I, and I believed, I, I bought it totally. Right. Um, and then I got to Duke and I saw that, 
you know, I, I grew up in a very comfortable middle-class family, um, you know, um, but we weren't like super wealthy, you know. You're white. I'll just say for, for people who don't know, you're white. Yes, and I'm white. So, yes. Um, so that, you know, we were, I totally bought into all of that. And then I got to Duke and I realized um, that that actually wasn't the case. <laughs> um, that it was, you know, I, I, I grew up believing that America was a meritocracy. And it was when I got to Duke that I realized it actually wasn't. Yeah, I had and that I, experience too at my college. Uh, although I kind of didn't wake up to it until years later and I look back, I was like, wow, that was a very white middle class and upper middle class place I went to. But yeah. Yes. yes. And also the fact that, so, so this was what, I mean, and this is probably a, a small thing to, to, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of inequities, but, you know, I, I, I was sharing an apartment with two other girls and one of the girls happened to come from a very wealthy family who gave a lot of money to the school. And, but we both made Dean's lists. And one day I was in her room and she had this little tchotchke um, that said Dean's List and I hadn't gotten one. So I was like, <laughs> I was, and, and I mean, it's stupid to get upset about something like this, but anyway, so I was like, oh, I didn't, I made Dean's List. I didn't get one of these. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, it's for like kids. If your parents gave money to, and, and I, I was like, wait a minute. Dean's List is supposed to be about merit. And right. they're trying to create a two-tiered dean's list. Like, you know, anyway, there's so much greater inequity than that. No, but it's a great but, example. It's just a, yeah. because even amongst people, you know, who are middle-class white people, although she wasn't middle-class, that you discovered, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Maybe she dressed yeah. a little better. Um, no offense. Uh, you know, like I... I yeah. You know, no, I, I, mean, I mean, we would go to the mall and like she'd be able to like go buy new outfits. And I was like, and also I always worked while I was at college. I always had to have a job. You know, I had student loans. Um, you and I are very similar. I yeah. had a very similar experience of, you know, I never had a car at my school. I went to a place called Union College in Schenectady, New York. Uh -huh. And I was in a fraternity and, you know, I, I work, but I, I always worked security in the school or the library or some other thing. And yeah. I had either fraternity brothers or other people I knew who just like, they had a car. It just like yeah. magically was there. And it wasn't a, wasn't a crap car sometimes, you know? I uh, had a crap car. I, I did have a crap car, but not till like sophomore year, I think. And it was because, you know, it went down through the family. Like it was like my mom's and my brother's and mine. And mm -hmm. Once it like it broke down halfway to Durham and like you know from Connecticut and like it was yeah it was a nightmare but yeah but it, Wall Street, well I'm sorry go ahead yeah go ahead gonna, no 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 I'm getting just, very off topic yeah that's all right I, I just I love I always like listeners to hear that there's no straight line it's not like you were born a writer you did three things and then you were published so yeah. like you you know you had a different upbringing than lots of people but that's you know, it's great in a way that you were in London, and I'm sure there were other things that you would have wished, whatever. Uh, and you yeah. spent several years, I have friends who live in Chesant, which is like in the middle right. of nowhere in England. Yeah. And so I have a sense like, you know, it's just different than being in Greenwich or Brooklyn. Um, but or Stanford, you, where I grew up. But, but right. also I think, you know, looking at America from the outside in, 
I think gives you a very different perspective. Um, you know, having lived abroad and seen how, for example, I lived abroad during the 90s. So when the whole Clinton thing was going on, um, you know, I was looking at it from a different perspective. Which Clinton thing? <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Well, the, the whole Monica Lewinsky and the impeachment and the whatever. Yeah. Um, the, the ridiculous lying about sex versus yeah. lying about national security. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it was so. Um, and also, even as a schoolgirl in England um, during the early 70s, like I lived there from 70 to 75. Um, when Watergate was going on um, and sort of like being kind of glad I was in my little English schoolgirl uniform and, you know, because it was embarrassing. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've traveled throughout Europe and occasionally have wished I could fake being Canadian. Um, and it doesn't mean I don't love being in America, but for the most recent four years were devastating. Oh, yeah. And to travel in Germany, you know, you, uh, you know, I was brought up Jewish, New York, very yeah. typical of my type, whatever. Um, I went to Germany and uh, I was shocked at how great it was. I oh, was I yeah, I love I, Germany. Yeah. I'm, I'm always shocked by how amazing Europe is, how happy my European friends are who have no desire to become millionaires. They don't live badly. They make a good living. They pay taxes but the constant stories of their free health care and the ease the real stories not the propaganda that we're fed by certain people here is and it's eye-opening and i think that travel you know you did it when you were young and then throughout your life travel is a great educational tool because you see like you know i'm in sicily and you know some parts of sicily are very rural and uh economically depressed but even there, people are living better than they are in certain parts of New York City. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I, you know. I am all of I. Uh, you don't. You, you're preaching to the choir here. I am. Um, I I've just want writing. listeners to hear that too. Yeah, I no, I, I, travel. I, I wrote. I, I was a political columnist for 13 years, and I wrote a lot about um, health, healthcare, because my husband and I are both self-employed. Oh um, And. It's, you know, the amount that we paid for horrible, high deductible um, health care is, is obscene. And, right, it's emergency I mean, health care. You're hoping you never use it. And like you said, high deductible. So you're going to yeah. be out of pocket thousands of dollars before oh, they God, cut yeah. off something. Yeah. And with like, you know, $50 for a prescription. And um, so I, I during 2020, I actually taught at one of the state, I had been teaching in the MFA program, but I taught full-time undergrad. And so I was able to get on the state policy and it's, it like saved us like $40,000 a year. My wife, it's it's much better insurance. So my my wife works for the board of education in New York city. We have great insurance and I've talked about this. I'm not going to bore you. I've written about it. My wife uh, has a benign brain tumor which she oh discovered into, she's fine. Oh, um, it's an ongoing thing. I still yeah. write about it because it's, we've got challenges occasionally. It was yeah. discovered in 2018, but if she did not have great health insurance, I mean, millions of dollars, we would have been had to file bankruptcy, the medications that it's just yeah. unbelievable. And I get it. I'm not 
I don't take that for granted. And I also work for everyone to have that. Yeah, you know, no, think, me too. I mean, you know, uh, and, that's, I, yeah, I, I am totally with you on that. Yeah, um, it's obscene. Yeah, we are definitely getting more political. Who did you write for when you did political I wrote, um, I started off writing for the Hearst newspapers in Connecticut, like the Greenwich Time and the Stanford Advocate. And um, I also wrote for a Connecticut-centered new, news site called ctnewsjunkie.com, which is like an online site. Um, but I actually gave it up in 2017 um, because, I mean, first of all, you don't get paid a lot for doing that in your freelance. And no. I did a lot of research for my columns. Like I actually sort of, you know, um, did some pretty serious analysis of our incentives, our business incentives, and whether they were actually paying off in terms of, you know, our taxpayer money. Um, but um so I was getting, uh, you know, I, I was doing a lot of research for like a hundred bucks column, but then I also was getting a lot of hate mail and um, things which, and then like, you know, at, starting in 2015, it's started getting like rape threats and pictures of concentration camps. And it got to the, you know, women expressing an opinion online is, is not a fun place to be. I, a, a lot of women have it way, women, people of color have it way worse than I do, especially women of color. Um, but it, it started to affect my mental health. And then, um, you know, it, and when my mental health is affected, I can't write novels as well. And that's what pays for my very expensive health insurance. So I, I decided, you know, my husband had been wanting me to give it up for a while, but I really want, I love doing it, you know, but I just had to give it up and focus on fiction. I also I'm, feel like young adults are more open um, to, you know, ideas than a lot of adults are. You know, I used to hope that when the political nonsense, whether it's gay marriage or uh, teaching, you know, sex education or, you know, abortion rights, all that stuff. When we got to a certain point, the country would age out of it in the sense that people, men, women, whoever, uh, would reach a point where the younger people were like, why are we talking about this nonsense? You know what I mean? But yeah. sadly, um, you know, I'm sure you felt the shock that many of us liberal white people felt in 2016 when the election happened and I ate so much ice cream, I can't tell you, um, uh, because I don't do drugs, uh, except for Ben and Jerry. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and we all survived that four years, but like, I, you know, anytime I was on Twitter, I certainly uh, received anti-Semitic information from people, uh, threats, what have you. There were yeah. people, SWAT stickers in my neighborhood, which is, uh, you know, I would consider Brooklyn, especially where I live. There are movie stars in my neighborhood. That's the kind of neighborhood yeah. I have. And they're painting them, whoever they are, in playgrounds. So anyway, um, it, it's been a crazy time and no one would fault you for making the decision you made. Um, everybody's got to do what they got to do. Um, I've certainly backed off social media a little more and I notice even it, it has just gotten exhausting. I don't yeah. know if you feel that way. Um, I do. I, 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 I've been trying to really limit my consumption 
Um, I mean, I have to do it because I'm an author and, and so there are some really wonderful things that come out of it. Um, I've made great friends on Twitter yeah, like, and literature, and, literary Twitter is an amazing place where it, it is. people will actually interact with you. And I've had some and, of and those I people mean, on the show. Yeah. And, and as a, as a, um, a young adult author, like as a teenager, I can't even imagine interacting with an author of a book. I mean, I read a lot and like, you know, it never even occurred to me to try and interact with someone who wrote a book. They just seemed like they were on this pedestal. And, right. um, and now like I can, you know, it's, it's really wonder, it's like a two-way street. It's not just that, you know, they can interact with me, but then they write to me and sometimes I'll be like in the middle of a book and I'm really miserable. And I think, you know, we all have our inner crazy person and the inner crazy person will be like, oh, your previous like 18 books were a fluke and you don't have any idea how to <laughs> do this. Crazy. Yeah, but, but, but well, I mean, it's, that, I yeah, we're, we're all there. We, we've, we've all got that inner critic. Um, I just happen to call mine the inner crazy lady. And, um, and, but then I'll get an email from, you know, or, or something on social media from someone who read one of my books and it literally gives me the strength to go on or, you know, I'll be getting hate mail and then I get something from a kid who's like, your book changed my life. And I'm like, okay, this is why I do it. That this is, is why I'm always awesome. fighting for a better world because these kids need us to do it. Wow. That, well, that's the tagline of the whole show, but we've got a lot more show to go. <laughs> so, but I appreciate that. Um, you know, the, I'm, yeah. No, so sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, no. So sorry. I entered. You know, it's funny. I had like we talked earlier. I've been a musician and a writer and whatever, but I didn't really know the professional literary world until my best friend in high school, Suzanne Brockman, who uh, writes oh, wow. romantic suspense. Yes, yeah, so, her books. <laughs> so we went to high school together. She grew up in Connecticut, but she moved to Long Island. We became wow. great friends. We were in bands together. But anyway. All right, um, now I'm fangirling. Oh, that's fine. But, <laughs> but I'll tell you the, the, the marvelous stories of when, so she was having some limited success at Harlequin Silhouette, you know, doing one-offs, contemporary or um, category romances. And we were brainstorming ideas for a really good series. You know, back then, the way to do it, to become Nora Roberts or Sandra Brown or those people, besides being incredibly talented, is to create a series full of characters that you stay with. And, yeah. you know, some people create a town and people come and go from the town. That's been done to death. You know, some do the brothers. You have four brothers, one illegitimate brother, and then you're done. You know, if you have too many illegitimate brothers, the family is not attractive anymore. Dad is a problem, right. whatever. So I read a magazine about Navy SEAL training and I said this right. to, to Suze and the rest is history she wrote the first Navy SEAL romance that I'm ever aware of and the, it just blew up I think and I've read like all of or, or most of those you know like romance is kind of like my crack for oh, when great. I'm like when I'm and I, I don't want this to sound derogatory because I love romance novels, but like when I'm in the middle of a novel and I don't want to read something, when I've been writing all day, I don't want to read something that's going to like, you know, be challenging my thinking and making me think deeply. Like I want something that's fun. And Look, those books are so fun. 
Yeah, that's yeah. great, great yeah. pop music. Um, what great country music, it's been said by somebody else, is three chords and the truth. It can be yeah. simple and it's about somebody's truck. And in fact, you can cry because there's a one recent one that I heard about uh, a man whose son died in the war and he drives his truck every day. And oh, oh it just killed me. I mean, but but that that the fact that it's a simple song doesn't mean it's not a brilliant and beautiful song. Yeah. So I don't, I, I understand your appreciation of that. My, my point is that I ultimately ended up working for Suze. I stopped being a lawyer for a while. I was a full-time actor and I worked for her and I would travel the country in the back of a minivan doing book tours. There used to be these things, boys and girls called bookstores. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a place called Borders that doesn't exist. There was a place called Walden Books. I yeah. saw everyone in like 48 states. So yeah, yeah and we did lots of tours and, and things. And you'd come into a town and people, you know, I'm in Mattoon, Illinois or Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Um, they don't meet authors in person very often. It's not to say those aren't lovely places, but like yeah. a place where, you know, if you make a wrong turn, you're on the crop dusting airport, you make the right yeah. turn, you're at the Walden books. And so, yeah. and that's, I met America and so did Suze. And having that experience of people who are voracious readers, who appreciate the written word and appreciate a great story, changed my life. Um, and I got to see what I thought was a great part of America, even when there were people I knew who didn't agree with me on things in real life. I never felt as scared, I'm just gonna say it, as I have the last four years with some of the crazy shit that's been happening. Yeah. But meeting, writing, I didn't write for anybody. In fact, quick story, once, so my name's in a couple of the books because some of them are dedicated to me. And somebody came up to me at a book signing and said, will you sign my book? Yeah. In front of Suze's husband, Ed. And I said, right. no, no, yeah. I, I felt like it would be wrong for me to sign a book that yeah. somebody else wrote. And he grabbed me, he said, hey, sign your book. <laughs> and I, so I signed it under my name at right. the dedication. Oh, and, that's nice. But it felt really special. And trust me, uh, I didn't write the books. So 99.999% of all of this is Suze and her husband, Ed. The contribution I made, whatever, I'm very proud of. But it's, it's got to be, so with you being responsible for all of it, when you sign a book, when somebody comes to you and says that, it's, it's not just ego. It's not just, oh, good, somebody liked me. It's like, I saw your work. I saw, because I, you're in a room right now where you probably write, and it is a solitary experience. I know because a lot very, of ego work. Yeah. It's very solitary um, it can be very lonely. And that's, that's another thing that, you know, that is the benefit of social media is being able to, you know, share some of that loneliness with other writers. I do, during normal times, I would allow myself definitely one and sometimes two writing retreats every year, which I considered my personal, you know, investing in my career development. Um, because, there's something about being in a place with other writers that you can, you know, you get ideas. Sometimes they help you solve a, a problem um, in a book. That Sometimes it's just could, an energetic thing. I can't. Yeah. I yeah. You're sitting in a room and everyone people. else is typing. And so you're like, you know, um, it makes you type harder, you know. We're herd um, animals, you know, in our tribal. It, 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 there's an energetic thing. I, I absolutely 
believe that's important. I also have counseled young authors or aspiring authors or older authors to go to conferences, not just retreats, but if you're yeah. trying to learn the business, go to some of the conferences. Now it's obviously because of the pandemic, it's less, I'm not an agent anymore. So I haven't been in a few years. Do you ever go to conferences to speak, to interact with people? Oh, you know? definitely. And, and I can tell you that I got my first, so my first book was called Confessions of a Closet Catholic. It was about a Jewish girl who, she gave up being Jewish for Lent. Um, and it actually won the Sydney Taylor Award from the Association of Jewish Libraries. So you didn't um, get, you didn't get like, I, see today, if that came out, I can't imagine if people would be hateful like thinking um no I, no because well as i had to tell a jewish father i was like don't worry she ends up being jewish in the end you know um but it, it actually had this very interesting distinction of being it won the sydney taylor award from the ajl but it also was on 10 books suitable for christmas gift giving by the catholic news service and i was like my bases i'm covering my bases <laughs> you know um but but I think that part of it was that it was looking at religion respectfully um, and sort of talking about exploring what religion means to you as opposed to your parents and your family and trying to find your own way towards a relationship with God. Um, and, you know, so so it was, I, I think, you know, it's still, you know, PJ Library, um, still publishes it so um yeah it's great That's fantastic i i but but i got it. that book contract because uh and this was like a long time ago because it came out in 20 20 2005 so um i had gone to the scbwi conference which is society of children's book writers and illustrators Thank for you. um and I had gone to their conference. I've been to pre other conferences of theirs, but I a went great to organization, by the way. It is. If you want to write children's books, you should definitely join. Um, but um, so I went to their conference in New York, and I happened to hear this editor who became my editor for that book. Um, and she showed a picture of herself when she was in high school or middle school. And it was like, it was like all these blonde girls playing the flute. And then she was this frizzy haired girl, frizzy haired Jewish girl playing the drums. And she was like, this is who's reading your book. And I was like, that's who I have to send my book to because my book was about a frizzy haired Jewish girl who like loved chocolate and, you know, was confused about God. And I, so the fact, and what I didn't know was that she had been looking for a Jewish kind of book. Um, so my book, like so much of it is getting your book to the right person, whether it's the agent, whether, you know, um, so. Are you agented you know, now, by the way? I am agented. My agent is Jennifer Lochran at um, Andrea Brown Literary. I know her. I'm confident she's amazing. I know her. Yeah, uh, yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, you'll never, anyone listening, I'm never badmouth uh, any agents because I think I know almost all of them. And mm -hmm. um, they really do work very hard. And they're not an agent if they ask for money. They're only yes. an agent if they get paid when you get paid. That's yes. one of those like incredible things that still happens that those are schmagents. That's a whole other conversation. And, and, but, and you know what, the other thing is I compare your agent relationship to your marriage um, because hopefully you are going to be with your agent all your life, but 
sometimes it doesn't work out. So I am, Jen is actually my second agent. And, you know, I was with my first agent for four books, but it got to the point where I started to feel like I was too small of a fish in a very big pond. Um, And so then I ended up, you know, I sort of had to think about, you know, because you're paying your agent 15% of everything you earn. So you want to make sure that you feel like you're being treated like the client. And um, so I eventually moved to Jen and it's been a really good career move and I love her. And she's what I love about her also, first of all, she's very transparent, but also she's very blunt. Like, you know, so like I started working on this book um, and here's another reason I'm telling this story is because it's, if you, if at first you don't succeed, keep trying. Um, So I'd, I'd wanted to write a, a book about, the the fairy tales because I I was inspired when I was in this marriage that didn't work out and I was watching Cinderella through uh with my daughter who was then like a toddler and um I watched them like go off in the pumpkin coach kissing and you know and living happily ever after and all I could think was they don't really live happily ever after like what really happens is he takes her for granted and she ends up doing all the work around the castle. And, you know, why am I showing my daughter this? Can I swear? Um, <laughs> sure. By the way, this is the second act of Into the Woods by Stephen Right. Sondheim. Yeah. Oh, right. But so, um, yeah. So I was like, you know, wh- why am I showing my daughter this shit? Like, you know, it's like how I was brought up and I believed in it and it's really not true. Um, so I started... I think I tried, I tried one version, like right after my first book, then I had this idea, like, I would tell it from the, the, the perspective of the fairy tale character's teenage daughter. And, but at first I thought it had to be like oldie worldy fantasy. And I worked on it for like two months and I was so excited and I sent it to Jen and I thought she was going to tell me like, we're going to sell the movie rights and I was a genius <laughs> and all that stuff. Sorry. But she didn't. Yeah, no. yeah, no. She was like, honey, if you want to write this book, you need to go to fantasy boot camp. And uh, so I sort of had my little pity party and then I went on to write my next book, which, you know, was much more, um, you know, saleable. Um, but then... I still, it was still in the back of my mind. So then many years later, I was talking to a teacher friend, Cindy Minich, who uh, runs the Nerdy Book Club. And um, she, I was telling, I was whining, uh, not that I ever whined, but I was kind of whining about how this idea, and I was really miserable. because And she was like, Sarah, why does it have to be oldie worldy fantasy? Why can't it just be contemporary? Contemporary fairy like, tale. I love it. Yeah, and it was like that V8 moment, you know, you know, I could have had a V8, you know? And so, um, so I real, so I ended up rewriting it um, as middle grade, but, you know, and so like the first one is about Snow White's daughter who needs a date for her eighth grade dance. And of course there's all this pressure on her because her mother's fairest in the land. Um, and her mother runs this website called charminglifestyles.com where she sort of gives advice to the love lord on how to find their handsome prince. and. So it was perfect because A, I could write a funny book um, because, you know, I felt like my young adult novels are all on pretty serious topics. And I felt like I had this sense of humor in real life that wasn't actually being expressed by my body of work. Um, so I had so much fun. I wrote three, three novels in that world. And um, 
it was it was just so much fun. Um, but Jen then sold them, and uh, you know, I ended up writing three books in that fairy tale world. So, and that that, that that period of time was probably like from the first idea to actually the first book coming out was probably a decade almost. You know, I, I want to back up just a second because in case people missed it, you talked about being with an agent is like a marriage. One of the strange things, having been on the other side of that table as an agent, is you have a, a speed dating experience often. You either meet agents at conferences or by email, but you, as an agent, I wanted to meet people in person. You meet them, uh, from my perspective, you read their stuff. If you like their work and you think they're the kind of person that you can work with, that you won't feel nauseous when the phone rings, and just skip their name. <laughs> that's always a, that's always a tell, yeah. Right. But um, then you go for it. But you do it on very little dating. It's not quite an arranged marriage, but it is yeah. a like, hey, that was a really fun blind date. Want to get married? And then you really discover when the rubber hits the road. It's like when you start talking about why the book doesn't work for me. Do they hear it? Do they? You know, are we on the same page with that? And then when we're talking about where we should try to send it and what the feedback we get and how you take that, how you interact with each other, you know, is a big deal. All, you know, there are plenty of agents who feel like they don't need to be in constant contact with their clients and they try to train their clients out of contacting them. I was a one person yeah. shop and I sort of sold that you could get me anytime and only me. But, right. but there are some places where you have to go through a phalanx of secretaries to get to your agent. Some yeah. people feel like that's the kind of agency I want. It's a big name. People know it because they also, that agency represents actors and movies and I'll be more connected. It's a big, it's just, that's a whole other giant conversation. But yeah. you had you had that experience and found out what yeah. worked for you. But to be and honest- And I have to tell you, I did yeah. a lot of due diligence um, before I went with, you know, with Jen, when I was looking for a new agent, um, I knew, it's interesting you mentioned the communication piece, um, I knew the communication and being transparent was really, really important to me, like, because I wanted someone who was going to be, um, not treat me like a three-year-old, like, you know, who didn't know the business, like, but would treat me as a professional. Um, um, someone with a degree and, from Duke and NYU Business School. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, that's like, you know, it, well, honestly, I teach at a public university and I feel like, you know, there are so many smart kids that I teach who are there because they can't afford to go to Duke or wherever, even gotcha. with financial age, aid. So I'm kind of like, you know, yeah. You don't um, care about the credential, but at least like somebody. But I, I was expected. fortunate to have it. Yeah. So, right. um, but anyway, so um, I, what I did was, luckily I sort of by then had been in the business for a while and I knew a lot of people who had different agents. And so I would ask them questions. I was like, who's your agent? Do they respond to you in a timely manner? Because that was super important for me. Do It was actually from them, from talking to other people that I found out that agents actually tell you in advance who they're gonna send your work out to. Because when my agent had hadn't done experience. that. No. And and so, like, because I had been so new when I got into the business, I didn't even know that was a thing. And and I was like, oh my God, I want that. Like, I want to know who it's being sent out to. And well, that you was know, a conversation for me. I would I would come up with a list and we would talk about it together. Yeah. 
and and yeah. Jen does that too. I mean, now I'm extremely fortunate that I have a good relationship with my editor as well. So, you know, I can pitch ideas with my editor before we even go through my agent. Um, right. Which I believe me, I am. I know how fortunate I am to have that kind of relationship. Oh, that's a whole, and again, that's a whole other thing. When you find a house that, meaning a publishing house that you feel yeah. is good for you, for your work, and they give you an editor that you gel with. Yes, because an it makes you know, so much difference. Yeah, Editors, I mean, you're handing your baby over to somebody who's like, look, I am going to do some things to this, most likely, but they're going to make it better. Trust me. I mean, that can, for some people, that can be harrowing. Yeah. No, for uh, me, I'm, I, I, I worship my editor because I know, I mean, I will push back on some things, but, um, you know, that I feel strongly about, but sure. generally, um, you know, I know that my books wouldn't be, you know, they would be like dreck without her. So well, I, I still write columns for, or, or blog posts for certain special events. And I have somebody edit me that just makes it a better piece. Yeah. I get to, I get, I don't know about you. I get to a certain point. Like after a while I've looked at it. I'm like, I can't even see this article anymore. Like oh, it's yeah, all just totally. a bunch of characters. Yeah. No. And that's, that's why like having a critique group, like, you know, um, having a critique group, a really good critique group that's not afraid to be honest with you about whether something's working or not. And, you know, one of the things I, I've talked to in advance with my, you know, the, the people who are coming to Yale is that learning how to give and receive good critique is such an important part, A, of being a writer, but also being part of the writing community. Let me back up a second. I want to talk about that because People, lots of people who start out have what they call beta readers. They'll finish yeah. their work and then they'll hand it off to, and I don't know if you're saying the same thing, like your critique group may be a series of beta readers, but I've, I've noticed that some people can really be helpful and it can really be great. But some people, if they're not chosen well, you can get people who can, I hate to say it because it sounds sinister, but they could sabotage you. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, it's all of it's all about having, you know, choosing the right people um, to, you know, who, who you trust to give you honest but um, constructive criticism. I'll give you an example. When I, uh, I, I first started publishing columns as a columnist, um, I was still married to my first husband and I gave him one of my columns to read and he started, like, he didn't say anything about the content of the column. He just started ripping apart. And I, I you know, I'm a pretty good writer, but um, he started, like, telling me that I split an infinitive or something, you know. And, and I ended up crying. The bottom line is, after his critique, I ended up crying on the bathroom floor. We're going to say and he's an ex-husband. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Very different from current husband. Um, but, you know, so... I so I never basically I never showed him anything I wrote ever again, um, and um, because it was too destructive for me uh, sure. to do that. Whereas, like you know, I've had beta readers, and one thing I've learned is that if two beta readers have the same problem with a the book, then you know you have got to look at something. 
um, like for, for there was one book, I can't even remember which one it was, where two of my beta readers were kind of like, where's dad in all of this? Like there were a lot of conflicts with mom, but the dad was not really much of a figure. And they both wanted to know like, where is he in all of this, you know, trauma that's going on? And I realized like two people said the same thing. I need to strengthen his character and make him come to the forefront a bit more. Um, so that's an example of how beta readers can be really constructive. I'm going to make a jarring uh, segue, and I apologize, but <laughs> I, I know we're going to run out of time. This always flies by when I'm having fun. Um, I hope <laughs> I'm it's not like, too, okay, so. good. I got you to say it all on the record. I appreciate that. Um, I want to talk about what I think is your latest book called Deep Fake. Is that the most recent book? Yes, yes. So I'm caught by the title and I have to admit, I haven't read it yet, although I love, love the cover. Love oh, me the cover. too. Me too, me too. And, and, and covers <laughs> matter. And we'll talk about that in a second. But Deep Fake, I, I literally just attended a continuing legal education seminar involving technology, um, social media, and influencers, because there's a lot of legality or illegality around people who are influencers and advertising and morals clauses and whatever. And deep fakes are becoming problematic in every aspect of intellectual property. As you might imagine, let's, for people who don't know what a deep fake is, why don't you, I'm sure since you just wrote this, why not, because I can talk about it, but let's hear you. Uh, okay. What's a deep fake? Okay, so a deep fake, um, it's a, so deep fake is a portmanteau, like a, you know, word smushed together um, between um, deep learning and fake. So deep learning is a subset of AI. Um, and basically... That's artificial intelligence. Oh, sorry. Yes, no, no artificial problem. intelligence. Um, and actually, yes, it's good that you said that because when I was on the farm... AI referred to artificial insemination of cattle. So <laughs> this is not about insemination of any kind. Yes, sorry, sorry. Yes, That's no. Right. <laughs> this is young adult. Yes, yes. <laughs> sorry, my husband's like you have no filter, but it is funny no, um, I, that it has two very different meanings. And I'm a former and stand up, and I cannot contain myself, so you're <laughs> fine. So, um, so basically. Um, these deep neural networks, um, if you feed enough images and recordings into them, um, they can create a video of someone saying and doing something they never said. Um, and this is incredible. Let, let's just say you are a movie star who's known for being, uh, doing a lot of G or PG movies. You're very bankable. All of a sudden a video comes out of you doing something incredibly inappropriate with somebody in public. Let's just say that. And it or looks I mean, real. honestly, honestly, yeah. the the it, you know the whole deepfake thing came from you know misogyny, like putting movie stars' heads on porn stars' bodies and then um, without was... their consent, and then it went on to like young women who have, were not famous. Like this, there was a case in Australia, I think it was either Australia, I think it was Australia or New Zealand, but like you know this poor girl, like they they you know she had all these like porn videos made of her without her consent and it you know caused her horrible horrible mental trauma there's also worldwide implications i'm not minimizing that but i saw uh, or heard a piece or read it where uh 
it, on the lunar landing back in 1969, Nixon was president and he had two separate speeches, one for yep. when they were successful, which he did deliver. But this happens all the time in politics, especially presidential politics. A second speech is written in case you lose, in case we lose the thing, in case someone dies. Whatever. And so he had one about them being left there or died in the mission or whatever it was, but it was never recorded. Someone I, um, did it. Yeah. I, I actually show that when I'm doing like a school visit or something about deep fakes. I show mm -hmm. them a clip of that. Um, and the clip is that he's delivering the speech. He's delivering that, that speech. Died, which yeah. he never delivered. He didn't even practice yeah. it. It's a complete deep fake. So all of that with background now, it's it's slightly terrifying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and as a political writer, like, as soon as I started reading, so a lot of my YA novels um, have to do with the intersection between being a teenager and technology. And I think the reason that I'm so fascinated by that um, is that I grew up without most of that technology. Um, like my, I think it was my sophomore, junior year of college, I took a computer science class and it was the first year they were using PCs. Um, they had been, you know, all my friends in computer science had been using punch cards, which most kids today probably, uh, yeah, okay. So, I, I yeah, used punch even, cards to learn Fortran in college. Yeah, yeah, so I learned Pascal on a PC. Um, so, um, you know, I think I grew up without most of this and the thing was, and I, you know, I say this to kids when I'm visiting schools, like, in some ways life is easier for them, but in a lot of ways, I feel sorry for them because as a teenager, I made a lot, a lot of mistakes. You know, I was not, you know, a choir girl, um, but I was able to make those mistakes in relative privacy. And, um, you know, they're sort of hazy memories in the minds of my high school friends. Today, you make one mistake and the, you know, the, the, the consequences are so huge because it could be around the world in, you it's know. It's like the saying, the internet is written on pen. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, so, and, and the thing is, mistakes are how we learn, hopefully. Like, not everyone does learn from the mistakes, but hopefully you make a mistake when you're young and you're like, oh, you know, it's like how, you know, you put your hand on this hot stove and you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore, you know. But with the internet, it's like, you know, every mistake you make can be there for everyone to see. Right, and how people and, react is very interesting. There's not a lot of compassion. It depends no on the compassion. mistake, but... I mean, I'm not talking about, say, Marjorie Taylor Greene claiming that wearing a mask is just like living through the Holocaust. I mean, when you're well, in your we have, we have Jew. Oh, you guess I have my um. I have space this laser. I, I have actually the mini space laser, and then this I have this sticker on my oh, computer. That's what, for people who don't know. She, uh, she oh, showed yeah, me like, the Jewish space laser. Uh, sticker which i've seen advertised sarah it says it's, it says that you're mazel tough and i i was like that's me i'm mazel tough you know? it's got a of course it's got a star of david um and it's all to make fun of the fact if you didn't know it that marjorie taylor green a congressperson okay this person was elected to congress i uh, just got to throw that out there um she claimed that the forest fires in california and elsewhere in the united states were caused by and i'm just quoting it you can look it up Jewish space lasers. Um, when shit, and I'm saying it, shit like that is said by people who are elected to Congress and nobody expels them. Nobody, like, 
when there's not a big penalty, I, as a Jewish American who grew up watching plenty of history about 1930s Germany and Europe, I start to make sure my passport's in order and I ask all my friends in Europe if they have an extra bed. And if you think I'm overreacting, sorry. You're not. I, You're I, not. You know, now you married a Jewish guy the first time yes. around. Did you, Both you, times, yeah. you didn't grow up Jewish though? Oh, no, I did. Yeah. Oh, you did? No. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm Jewish, yeah. You, pat, and, um, you know, I'm, uh, you, I didn't get that my Judar didn't go off with you. And <laughs> it must be because I did the gray hair thing. I don't know. Usually my hair, like before I went gray, I'm like totally dark and yeah. Ah, okay. But yes, uh, I am I am Jewish. Um, in fact, I have a letter from the, the London Beth Din saying how Jewish I am <laughs> because my first husband and I were married by this rabbi who they considered a heretic. So then when we joined a congregation in a different, in England, a different congregation in the UK, they wanted like proof that we were really both Jewish because they wouldn't accept our ketubah. Ah, it's like yeah. Jewish politics. No one wants to hear, but the bottom line is that I have a legal document from the, you know, Jewish high court saying that I am super Jew, basically. Yeah, and like, while I think that's cool, part of me is like, I don't want the wrong people to find that document. I know. <laughs> and use it against me. You know, I, I did 23andMe, and at one point it was like, I was 97% Ashkenazi Jew. And oh, the other I'm 100%. Three, well, because... this is my, my punchline is 3% was somewhere else. And I thought, wow, that's mysterious. Blah, 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 blah. And then they sent me a corrected thing. No, we were wrong. You're actually 100% Ashkenazi Jew. Yeah. No, well, they told me I didn't have enough paternal DNA. But um, oh. so, um, but from the DNA they got, I am like Jewy McJew pants, you know, um, which, I mean, just- Welcome to, to about... Jews talking about Jews. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> is that really legal? If you feel like we're talking about Jews too much or not enough, Go to isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place to leave me a message and let me know. Um, you can also leave a message there um, if you want to talk about other great guests. If you love Sarah, let me know. You could let her know. Sarah, how do people get in touch with you as long as I'm talking about this? They can go to my website, which is Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Darer, D-A-R-E-R, Littman, L-I-T-T-M-A-N.com. Or on Twitter and Instagram, and I think Facebook the same, I am Sarah Dare Lit, L-I-T-T, and that's just because they wouldn't give me enough letters for my, but, um, but, but I do want to just tell you about the book I'm working on now, which um, has been not easy to work on. Is that going to be at Scholastic also? It's also is at Scholastic fall of 2022. I just want um, people to be impressed by your publisher because it's a good one. <laughs> I love Scholastic. I was so sad when Dick Robinson just died because he yeah. was such a champion of literacy. Um, but anyway, so this book is, um, which is untitled as of yet, um, but it's about a um, teenage boy who's radicalized to white supremacy online. Um, and it's told from two points of view. And this is like, this is why I'm rewriting it. Cause first it was two points of view, a boy and a girl. Then it was two point, three points of view. And now it's two points of view, two guys. Um, so it's been a lot of rewriting, but it's also forced me to really go out of my comfort zone in a big way. Like I, you know, I've interviewed the former head of the um, national socialist movement in the US. 
um, a, a former neo-Nazi from um, Canada. Um, you know, so, and it's also sort of made me think very differently about how to approach these things. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm very excited for this book to come out if I finish it, which I will. <laughs> you know what's so funny to me is not just because I was an agent, but because I know and love many writers who I didn't represent or anything, you often have similar, like this, I'll never finish this book. You know, but yeah. there's, there's, there's a lot of ups and downs of, I'm very excited about this. Oh my God, why did I start this book? This was a terrible idea. Um, oh my God, oh nothing's God. been written like, but this is the greatest thing I've ever done. Oh, I think I should throw it all out and start over. Like this could oh, all yeah. happen within the same day. Certainly. Oh God, yeah, no, month. this is that—that's the inner crazy lady or man or whoever. Um, but I had that as an actor, you know. I had the yeah. I'd get a part and be really thrilled. Then I would be—I'll never be able to memorize this. This is just—I can't. It's beyond me. And then, you know, and I was professional. I mean, like, I, and yeah, I did. Yeah. And then I'd memorize it. We'd start rehearsals. I'd be like, I'm terribly excited. We'd be getting close to the uh, opening night and I'd be like, we're never going to be ready. This is just an embarrassment. Yeah. I have to tell everybody to not come. And um, it was always ready. Sometimes we're better than others, obviously. Yeah. Um, speaking of Into the Woods, that was maybe the best thing. I was in a professional production in the Boston area. Oh, and it was cool. maybe the best thing I was ever in. Several of those people went on to do Broadway. And of course, singing Sondheim is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And... I cried every night on stage <laughs> because I just was so moved by the music. How could I not? You know, children will listen. It's just the greatest thing ever. Anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah. Back to you. I'd love to have Mr. Sondheim on. Hey, if you're listening, Steve, please. Give me yeah. Um, so anyway, so this is the book you're working on now. You don't have yeah. a title. Do you talk, when you start a book, do you tell your agent, look, this is what I'm going to work on. What do you think? Or do you say, I'm doing this. And eventually I'll get this into their hands and hope they like it. Like what's your well, process? Well, so so this book, um, I had the idea for this book two years ago while I was writing Deep Fake. And um Deep Deep Fake was a book that I ended up writing after I'd spent a year working on a book that I had to throw out, which was extremely depressing. Oh, I um, can't imagine. It was it was devastating, but Deepfake was ended up being a much better book than the book that didn't, you know, I killed myself with. Um, but I had the idea for this book and I wrote to my editor. And I was like, don't let anyone else at Scholastic write about this. I want to be the one who writes this book. Um, so then when it came time to work on the, you know, to talk about the next book, we sort of brainstormed some ideas together um, and then COVID hit. And then, so I wasn't sure if they were buying it and then they bought it, but then I was teaching full time. So anyway, it's been this whole long drawn out affair and sure. working on a book about this during a pandemic where you're seeing so, uh, and the election and seeing so much misinformation and disinformation about all of this stuff. Um, it's it it was it's been really terrifying and um, is there any started, part of it that makes you feel powerful um i think i think the the only thing that makes me feel powerful is hearing a lot of um the people i interviewed talk about what made them come out of the movement 
And one of the most powerful things I heard was, um, and I this was from a few people, was receiving kindness from people I least deserved it from. And that's part of the reason I changed how I react because it's so easy, you know, I literally have spent my entire life being afraid of Nazis um, for obvious yeah, For reasons. people who aren't Jewish, for people who aren't Jewish, you don't understand that I, I can't give you the experience, but you grow up and you and I, like I said, I'm only a couple of years older than you. If you go to Hebrew school, you watch movies about the Holocaust. If you live in America, you see movies about the Holocaust. Yeah, we watch you... Night and Night and Fog in my oh, high school. Sure, yeah. and then you yeah. know, Shoah, and like we will yeah. make a list of. I, I'm sure you Schindler's can just... List, like all the you know, yeah. So, but, but um... also, but but also, you, you know, we meet. I played chess with my brother at a local chess club in Long Island, and there'd be old European men with numbers on their arms. Yeah, and I didn't even know what that was when I was very young, and only found out later. Anyway, sorry. You, you were yeah, and and uh, and most of us have parts of our family tree that are completely gone because yes. um, you know our family was lucky enough to get here before it all happened, and and like there's a story in my family that. Um, what my grandparents, my grandfather was in the film business and he was, they were living over in the UK in the thirties and um, an aunt from Poland came over and they begged her not to go back to Poland. And she was like, well, you know, we have a business, people respect us, like nothing's going to happen to us. And of course it did. Um, but that's the thing that I'm afraid of. It's like, oh, but I live in Brooklyn. I'm a lawyer. It's like, I'm the guy they want first. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm the loud yeah. mouth on Twitter. Like, uh. yeah, well, I mean, all of it, you know, it, it's, it's something, it, it's funny because right before, um, like when Trump was, it looked like Trump was going to be the, um, the nominee. I went out to dinner with my husband and a high school friend, um, and I said to them, I want to start moving assets out of the U.S. Like, I want to have money that's not in the U.S. in case right. things go, you know, go bottom up. Um, and they told me I was overreacting. And, um, and then like a year or two later, once my husband started seeing sort of even how our local politicians um, were refusing to even, you know, speak up when there was all this hateful rhetoric mm -hmm. um, that he was like, you know what? You weren't overreacting. Like now I get it. Um, I need and, to ask you a quick question because we're really running out of time. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. No, that's okay. As of the date of this time we're taping, Kushner, the uh, ex-guy's son-in-law, made a deal, a book deal with a subsidiary of HarperCollins now, I still get checks from HarperCollins for deals I made at Avon, which is a much better imprint than whatever the fascist imprint is. They just yeah. bought Kushner. And there are people who um, nobody's talking about it. No, uh, or, you know, a few people are like, you know, tisk tisk. But um, I don't want to put you on the spot. If you don't feel comfortable talking about it, I understand. But I feel like there's a silence in publishing right now that um, shouldn't exist. I think people need to talk about- Well, it's interesting because um, my middle grade fairy tales are with Simon and Schuster. 
and they bought a book by Milo Yiannopoulos and which ended up being a total like shit show mm -hmm. and they ended up not publishing it because I mean if you've seen some of the stuff he handed in it was just like drag I mean you know um but I I ended up writing to the publisher as did several other of their authors um because I had been targeted by Milo Yiannopoulos's you know swarm and um that's part of the reason why I like don't have notifications on my, you know, political Twitter because it was just like it was like a nonstop stream of hatred and misogyny, and um, and so when he started screaming about censorship and you know his voice being silenced, it made me really angry because that's exactly what they were trying to do to women, to women of color, especially to men of color. Yeah, no, and there's, they are still doing it. And um, so I did write to them. And, and honestly, I'm glad that it, it turned out that his book was terrible anyway. But it is, it is hard because you think about like, you know, you're, you know, if you silence people, then they feel like more aggrieved. I know, but if but you, I, give, them, if you yeah. give them a platform, then they're spreading bad ideas. So yeah, it's 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 really hard. It's it's, it's a, not it's an easy a, thing. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm gonna have to wrap us up. I will say sure. this in Germany, I went to a historical, not really a museum, but some kind of display, and they had something from what they call the National Socialist era, which you know, the 30s Nazism, and they showed a plane and there were no SWAT stickers because you cannot have a SWAT sticker in Germany. It's illegal. Right. Now, right. uh, look, I'm an attorney. I understand the First Amendment, and people would argue that that is a violation of free expression. But there are limits on the First Amendment in the United States, and we need to have a conversation about this. And maybe, Sarah Dara Lippman, you will be the person I will have come back, and we will have a conversation about the importance of the First I would Amendment love that. free expression <laughs> and its limits. But if not, look, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you're like, oh, I needed to say this? Is there anything that's a burning... Um, I would just say for people who want to write for young people, um, it's so that two things are really important. A, don't do it to teach them a lesson. Um, you can have things that they may learn from your book, but you're not, you know, the purpose of writing stories for young people isn't to be didactic. Um, I, I look at it as I don't have all the answers, but I am trying to get you to think about the questions. Um, and the other thing I would say, if you want to write for young people is that you must respect them. If you don't, if you're like one of these people who's like, oh, kids today, blah, you know, probably <laughs> young, you shouldn't be writing for young people because you need to respect them. Um, and I have a huge amount of respect for young people today. I've, I learned from them about how to be a better, more open person. Well, I think that's awesome. I think that's a gift you just gave me and listeners. So Sarah Dara Littman, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely talking to you. <laughs>
Was I wrong? No, I wasn't. That was so much fun and really informative and we went everywhere, but we ultimately came back uh, to, you know, today. And speaking of today, um, be one of the people who gets the vaccine, would you? I really appreciate you doing that. Do it for me. Do it for people you love. Do it for people you don't even know. You know, you can also still wear the mask. It's okay. It's not foolish. It's actually one of the most sane things you could possibly do. So do it, would you? Um, don't forget to grab some Abe's muffins. They're allergen-free. They taste great. Um, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. It's available where all fine podcasts are available. And you can also leave reviews. Um, several people have left five-star reviews. No one's more surprised than me, but... If this is the kind of thing you like, please tell people. Um, we're going to keep doing this. I've got a lot of cool guests up coming up. But I'm open to hearing about other guests you think we should have on the show. So let me know. Again, is that really legal.com? Leave me messages, um, and I will gladly read them. Please take care of yourself. Take care of the people around you. And 